Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Rosh Hashanah sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. So there's a late night board meeting and the rabbi and the executive committee are having an extensive argument about some very important issue. And the, argue, the rabbi is making his case and he just cannot convince any of the lay people. And they take a vote. It's a secret ballot. And the vote comes in and the chairman of the board rises and says, the vote is seven, four, one against. And the one who cast the against vote is the rabbi. He's down seven to one. Rabbi closes his eyes and looks up to heaven. Master of the universe, give me some indication that I am correct. The sanctuary begins to darken. The seats begin to tremble. Wishes of air come through the room. The doors there on a Kodesh fly open and a voice from inside the ark says, The rabbi is correct. The chairman of the board, terrified, chastened, and humbled, stands up and says, I stand corrected. The vote is seven to two. And I don't even get a vote in this shul, so it's, it's totally irrelevant. For those who know me, you know that I love words. And I love Hebrew words. And I love it when circumstances in life literally change the meaning of a word or a phrase. There was a two-word Hebrew phase, which for the first 40 or 50 years of the state of Israel, meant one and only one thing. The words yeled, atum. Yeled meaning boy or child. Atum from the Hebrew root that means to be sealed in. And it was a way, perhaps not a particularly kind way, of referring in Hebrew to a child that had some learning issues whose mind was a little sealed in. That was the Hebrew phrase, a yeled atum, a sealed and sealed off child. Then came the Gulf War in 1991, the first Gulf War. I was there in Israel that year on the same program that my daughter Noah's on now. At the time, remember history only goes in one direction, we had no idea what the scuds that Saddam Hussein was going to rain upon Israel would be tipped with. We didn't know if they would have chemical weapons. We didn't know if they would have biological weapons. It seemed that the danger was more from something that could emanate from the explosion than the explosion itself. So every Israeli and every visitor to Israel was issued a gas mask, which I still have, and every apartment and every house and every dorm and every school created somewhere in the building a cheder atum, a sealed room. Sealed in such a way that if there were an explosion with chemical and biological weapons, they would hopefully not seep into the room where the people were living. And as I remember that year, from January to February, Saddam Hussein liked to send his schedules in the middle of the night. I remember sirens waking us up at one in the morning and two in the morning and going into the cheder atum, going into the sealed room. Pretty soon we realized that these missiles did not have these attachments, but just to be sure... 
probably spent 20 nights or parts of nights in the sealed room. He had Israelis up in the middle of the night worrying about their existence. Nine and a half months later, there was a new definition of Yeled Atum. Israel saw a mini baby boom in September of, in October of 1991. Because the Israeli way and the Jewish way has been to worry, yes, but also to love while worrying. <laughs> Literally. And produce life. And give birth to more Jews and to more Judaism as the primary response to threats against both. Hold on to that memory, that beautiful image, as we shift to a different memory. Remember when, remember when we thought that there were no more measles? The optimism was earned, but ultimately fallacious. Remember when we thought that society was sufficiently inoculated such that we no longer had to fear it? It's back, and it is real, and no, this sermon is not about measles. Remember when we thought that anti-Semitism was done, at least from our society? Remember when the Shoah and its lessons felt recent in time? Remember when Nazism was not neo, when intersectionality was not yet being wielded against Jewish statehood and Jewish power? Remember those few halcyon decades when we didn't need to define ourselves or our Judaism via the prism of those who hate us. Anti-Semitism in our lives seemed mostly extinct, like the dodo bird. Well, it's back, and it's very real. Remember when talking about what some people have called the world's oldest hatred united Jews rather than divided us? Remember when conversations about the topic were sober and grounded but did not inevitably turn into Jews pointing fingers at other Jews and accusing one another. Because that seems to be the norm now. It's a new double norm. One norm is that it is hard to wake up and digest the news and not be exposed to a new example of the world's being dangerous to and for Jews. Not just dangerous to the Jewish people as a collective, that too, maybe, but dangerous to individual Jews for being Jews. And not just via terrorism in Israel, but also via bricks thrown at heads of Jews in Brooklyn and synagogues on Fairfax being defaced with anti-Semitic slogans. Our Jewish reality feels closed in, and so we feel the need to close off. This is our new cheder atum, our new sealed room. It's our new norm. But the second new norm is that 21st century anti-Semitism is not just frightening us Jews, it's also tearing us apart and sealing us from one another. I firmly believe that the greatest victory these days of the anti-Semites is not in threatening Jews or even attacking Jews, but rather in dividing Jews. The biblical Kohelet, perhaps authored by King Solomon himself, cautiously cautioned us and wisely cautioned us. A threefold cord is very strong. It won't be easily sundered. But you separate the threads, and the whole is as weak as each individual thread. A version of that is happening to Jews 
as we succumb to the strategies of those who hate Jews, and thus making hating and threatening and weakening Jews and Jewishness all the more easy. My friend and colleague, whom I refer to often, Rabbi Barry Katz, often quotes his grandmother, who remembered with clarity the general state of the Jews in the 1920s and 30s and early 40s, before the creation of the Jewish state. And she would speak about the ashes of the Shoah and Israel rising like a phoenix over it, and Jews walking tall, heads up, with proud statures, no longer afraid. She didn't author a statistical analysis of anti-Semitism in the 1950s or 60s, just one Jew saying that she felt that things had changed. Remember those years? And should we meditate on how hopeful and how delusional those thoughts were? Think of this paradox. Herzl's Zionism was supposed to solve the problem of the Jews among the nations. His was such an optimistic delusion, or at least it lacked the power of prophecy. And in some terribly sad way, Zionism, both vis-a-vis, in part, how we've implemented it in the form of statehood, and also related to how the world sees the Jew in power, Zionism has actually amplified the very problem that Herzl's view of Zionism sought to solve. Rather than be a bomb on worldwide anti-Semitism, in more and more circles, it is kerosene on the fire. Now, we've been used to Israel as a lodestone for Jew hatred for a while now, but recently, something more dastardly, more comprehensive, more retro in the ugliest of ways, so far less deathly, but perhaps more problematic, has emerged. In the words of New York Times columnist Barry Weiss, who grew up in Pittsburgh, for the past two decades, American Jews watched anti-Semitism reemerge around the world with concern, but also a bit of condescension. We're the luckiest diaspora in history, she wrote. Our metal detectors were little more than a precaution. And then came October 27, 2018, still inside her quote, an otherwise quiet Shabbat morning during which 11 of my neighbors in Pittsburgh were slaughtered by a white supremacist as they prayed, end quote. And as we used to do for terror attacks in Israel before they became too numerous to remember by name, we can add to Pittsburgh, Poway, and Brooklyn, and Paris, and too many others on Barry's list. Like the measles, it is back with a vengeance, or maybe it was never really, really gone, and it is real, and we seal ourselves in our room, a tomb. Though it's back, I think that the delusions endure, and they hover throughout the Jewish world and throughout the political world. And I'm going to insert a parenthesis here. To the delight of some and the consternation of others. This sermon and this topic is about as close as I am prepared to get on these holy days when it comes to focusing on this American moment from a political angle. I'm your rabbi. I come to share my wisdom, refracted through the wisdom of the tradition that I've studied, and offer it to you both as a salve and a goad, not to tell you exactly what you must do with it, and certainly not to suggest that if you disagree with me, you are less. I don't write, write or speak towards consensus, but rather as a sacred poker to get you to think about things which sometimes you prefer not to speak about. 
And I'd like to think that this is a topic which sadly and comprehensively touches us all, but it still divides us, and that's sad for me. Parentheses over. When it comes to American political divides, I think that the delusions regarding anti-Semitism are equal opportunity attackers. With gratitude to Rabbi Chorney for being a thought partner with me on this material, I suggest that both the left and the right delude themselves with regarding hatred of the Jew. And the delusion is one of immunity. On the left, there's a delusion that stems from thinking that among lefties, we're in the presence of those who speak up for the marginalized and the underdog. How then could the Jew, history's classic doormat, be imperiled? We're protected. The delusion is that the Jewish narrative will be viewed as one of marginalization and therefore met with care and concern and protection in the same way as other marginalized narratives are. Plus, and paradoxically, given the previous point, we are white. Global society is telling us so, however preposterous that seems. And so we are privileged, and the privilege cannot be threatened. We are fine. But the delusion is apparent, and the immunity folds in on itself as we hear and feel, because we are white, and because we are privileged, and because we are powerful, and with Israel put into the picture because we have an army, too many other voices on the left will not consider us to be threatened, even when we are. There is no immunity there. And the delusion is self-defeating. And the anti-Semitism there is real and it is sealing us in. Atum. And delusions lurk on the right side of the divide. From this angle, presumed immunity comes from the fact that the lot of the Jew in America is now thrown in with the privileged and or white class narrative. We've made it, we've joined the club, we prosper, we are accepted. Presidents love us. Therefore, Jews are free from the danger of being viewed as other, other or lesser or different as we were for decades, as the phenomenon that sent us to the pogroms and the gas chambers. No longer, we think. That invulnerability is at least a partial delusion. And another potential right-wing delusion is that since there remains relatively unwavering support for Israel among the non-Jewish right, that phenomenon itself is demonstrative of acceptance of Judaism and of Jewish people. It is so comforting to believe that love of Israel is proof of love of Jews, but it isn't. The delusion is that at times, for some, Love of Israel is being instrumentalized on the right in some of the same dark ways that hate of Israel is on the left. And Jews are not safe, and the anti-Semitism is real there too, and we are atum. From the head to the heart, anti-Semitism and discussions of it bring up a whole array of emotions. Fear and demoralization and confusion and anger and sometimes steely resolve. And the topic also invites a wave of instant diagnoses, as if there's just a simple antidote to this poison and I've got the answer. Into such an emotional minefield, it's helpful and calming to introduce definitions. And for the best definition of anti-Semitism out there, I turn to Deborah Lipstadt. Many of you know her either as a former davener in the library minion during the years she lived in Los Angeles, or as an academic who won a famous lawsuit against a Holocaust denier that was turned into a movie, or both. She's become the doyen in her field. And according to Lipstadt, anti-Semitism, quote, is not the hatred of people who happen to be Jews. It is hatred of them because they are Jews. There's certainly much of the former in our world. 
It's the latter that is most troubling and which is reawakening. Dr. Lipson has a new book out. It's coming to rave reviews. It's called Anti-Semitism Here and Now. Here and Now. And in it, she also makes a distinction between an anti-Semite and an enabler of anti-Semitism. They are both odious, but they are different. Anti-Semites, as per Lipstadt's definition, intentionally hold Jews to double standards, knowingly single out Jews for attack, either verbal or physical, willfully harbor and spew hatred towards Jews as Jews. Anti-Semites are usually easily to identify, both amongst those who wield power and those who don't. They are more numerous and louder and more brazen than they were just a few years ago. They must be confronted and held to account. They must be defeated. An enabler may be one who harbors no specific or racist ill will towards Jews, but who might tell a joke about Jewing someone down, or who might overhear an anti-Semitic comment but choose not to speak against it. In our era, an enabler might repeat anti-Semitic memes or share tweets that portray Jews in classic anti-Semitic cartoon images or described as controlling financial markets. And a neighbor might have strong feelings about Middle East politics, but unknowingly links or expresses his or her critique in a way that singles out the Jewish state, the only Jewish state, for harsh critique. Anti-Semitic enabling is ubiquitous. Some of it is subtle. Some of it is not intended to be hateful. But if you're permitting it and propping it up and giving it oxygen, you're contributing to the scourge. Such enablers from the anonymous to the political elite must be called to task. Some might even be willing to be educated and redirected. And all of this is incessant. And so our attention to it must be tireless, which I know is so tiresome and which pushes us deeper into that room, atum, sealed off. The problem is real in 2019. So we who are not geopoliticians, we who, contrary to some of what the anti-Semites allege, do not control the world, what's a Jew to think to do on Rosh Hashanah on this topic? As I've laid out, I'm concerned about the national trends, not to mention the international ones. According to Alana Suskin, who's the regional director of ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, it's not a number, obviously, that's easily verifiable. People usually don't self-identify. But studies suggest that about a billion people on the planet harbor anti-Semitic feelings. There's not much we can do about that today. But through all of this, I'm worried about you, members of my community, this wonderful shul, who feel afraid. I know because many of you have told me. You feel helpless and powerless wondering how we confront a brand of hatred in this world we haven't seen in a long time. And as I think you know, I can't give you facile answers. They don't exist. But Barry Weiss's book does lay out a few strategies, though. Here are a few of them. One, know what you are fighting for and not just what you are fighting against. Two, trust your discomfort. If something makes you cringe, call it out. Three, Don't trust people who argue that there are good Jews and bad Jews. Look for those who multiply rather than divide. Four, notice who your enemies are, but never, ever forget to love your neighbor. Five, maintain your liberalism. These are some good, quotable, actional tactics. But my main role as a rabbi, as a pastor, a spiritual guide is two-pronged. One is to push you to get to the uncomfortable places that we often avoid. 
and the other is to hold you and make you feel more comfortable in your discomfort. You may not all like what I have to say in the first section to come, and that's partly by design, but I offer it with a pure heart and with pure intentions, and I hope that the second part can be a salve to the wound of this moment. I hope it's clear that anti-Semitism claims no individual home, neither politically nor religiously. Sadly, the illness is pervasive. But at the same time, each of us locates ourselves within one or more political or cultural or social homes. Here's my counterintuitive counsel that I aim both to implement for myself as well as preach it to you. Yes, confront anti-Semitism when you hear it. Write against it when you read it. Counter it when it is shared, whether directly or subtly by those around you or on your page or on your thread. And fight the anti-Semitism to which you are the most intimate witness. Fight it where you are most comfortable living and being rather than shouting across the aisle. If you find yourself on the right, use your voice to fight it on the right because it is there. And if you find yourself on the left, use your might to fight it on the left because it is there. Rather than do what feels satisfying in the moment, but which is rarely productive, which is to reach out to the people who most expect to hear it from you, but who are least likely to listen to you. Why don't we all reach out to the people who are least expecting to hear it from us and who thus might be most likely to listen? Advocate where your bona fides are established. Ferret out the stink amongst your political peers and show no tolerance for it. Apply to this very problem the astute psychological wisdom offered by the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidut. He teaches that we are most sensitive to and most bothered by the very sins and weaknesses and character flaws that we struggle with. That's what we're sensitive in others. Our anger and our being bothered by others' darkness exposes an internal shame. Let that very shame on behalf of those with whom we keep partial and expedient and conceptual company. Let that be the engine that drives this stage of activism as we fight this battle. I've had versions of this conversation with many of you. Wherever you are on the political spectrum, I accept it. I really, really do. The extent to which you will use that position to impact those closest to you rather than the easy targets farthest from you I will honor it, and I will celebrate it. And this kind of battle is harder for each of us. This type of fight will stir up more controversy amongst our own folks, but it will also keep us honest in this fight, replacing the endless, often virtue-signaling screams towards those who've stopped listening long ago. Replace it with hard-to-articulate, close-to-home, hand-to-hand verbal combat with those we might actually convince to begin to listen, maybe. That's the challenge, the prod. And here's what I hope will be some measure of comfort. The worldwide disease of anti-Semitism, it's beyond our scope to impact. But there is something that we can impact. In fact, only we can impact it. And during this season of personal resolve and resolution, this may be our most important commitment of the year. We can, once again, turn our sealed room into one bursting with new life. We can change the meaning of atum again. It's interesting to know where we are right now and what used to loom right over there and which we've preserved in miniature in the Hall of Memories. The American Judaism of the 1950s and 1960s was very post-traumatic. 
It was a Judaism built on catastrophe, woven together by painful memories. It was bold, but it was also scared. And at some point, the American Jewish community mostly, mostly transcended that. And the architecture of this very space is a celebration of that move. We focus not on Shoah. We focus not on how they attacked and maimed and killed us. We focus on one another, on Torah as the center. In the center, we focus on light streaming in, illuminating our lives and radiating out to the world. We focus not on fear, but on fearless, proud, robust, pulsing Judaism. Listen, anti-Semitism can take over everything, but so can anti-anti-Semitism. It's time to reclaim being a tomb and what can be done in that room. I return to Barry Weiss, the New York Times. Yes, Pittsburgh was terrifying. Yes, it shattered our sense of security. But she writes, quote, But the Jews did not sustain their magnificent civilization because they were anti-anti-Semites. Our tradition was always renewed by people who made the choice in the face of tragedy that theirs would not be the end of the Jewish story, but the catalyst for writing a new chapter. End quote. And the last of her strategies that list that I partially quoted before, she said, lean into Judaism. Nurture your Jewish identity. Support Jewish self-determination. Embrace Jewish pride. Tell your story. One person can change history. Is it you? I close with a beautiful teaching, again, from my friend Rabbi Barry Katz. The phrase that was probably first uttered by Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav that's turned into a camp song that camps from around the Jewish world know Kol haolam kulo, gesher tsar meod. Some of you know what the whole world is entire bridge. Veha ikar, veha ikar, lo lefached, lo lefached klal. But the main point is lo, not lefached klal, to fear at all. In fact, it's often translated that way when it's sung in English. The main point, not to fear at all. Klal meaning all. That's not possible. It's not possible not to fear at all. Rabbi Katz's redo of that phrase, lo lefached klal, don't make fear klal. Don't make fear everything. Don't let fear own you. Don't let fear overcome you. Don't let fear drive every post, every comment, every purchase, and every deed. This must be an era not of fearfulness, but a fierce and fearless Jewish life and presence. The year 5780, which is beginning these very moments, who knows what it will bring? It might bring more headlines, more violence, more micro and macro moments where Jews are threatened and hurt and killed because they are Jews. But I do know what it must bring from me and from you. This should and this could be your most Jewish year yet. The Shoah survivor and great Jewish philosopher Emil Fackenheim, named as the 614th commandment, on top of the Torah 613, that we not give Hitler a posthumous victory by assimilating with our lassitude, with our infighting. I would humbly add that we cannot give this generation of Hitlers and haters and enablers on the right and on the left a victory in their lifetimes. So as you fight in this moment, what life will you forge in this crucible? What will be your yeled atum? What you give birth to in this sealed off space? Because that you can do. That you must do. And that is your best and highest and most helpful and most hopeful and most holy response. I wish you all Shana Tova. Mm-hmm.
You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.